Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's this week's message with guest speaker Seth Gruber, a voice for the unborn. Good morning. You guys are beautiful. I, it's sort of bittersweet for me right now, if I'm being honest, because my family and I have actually just moved to Kansas. Now, before you go, you coward, you're leaving the lion's den of the fight. Uh, let me just justify my decision, okay? Um, my job obviously entails a lot of spiritual warfare. Uh, it's exhausting talking about killing babies full-time and why the church should actually do something about that. Uh, going on to university campuses, just a couple months ago, I was at Stanford, I was at UC Berkeley. That was interesting. Um, so traveling a lot, doing conferences, churches, pregnancy resource center banquets, etc. And we have a third baby on the way, being born in December, which would place all of my children and my wife with December birthdays. So... Um, pray that I have lots of speaking gigs in the fall so I can afford the month of December. Uh, so that being said, with how much I travel, my wife and children just need a, more of a slower life and a support system, uh, given the nature of my calling and career. And so my wife's entire family lives in Kansas, and so we are now seven minutes from her parents, seven minutes from her sister and brother-in-law, the cousins, her brother. So it's very good for my family. So we're not fleeing for political or financial reasons. I would have stayed here and fought till my dying breath. Um, but such is the nature of family, right? And ultimately, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about contending for and fighting for families, families who kill their own children, or good families who believe all the right things but do nothing to stand against the evil of our times. And unfortunately, that's one of the key sort of lessons of history is that by the time the good people who disagree with what they're seeing begin to wake up and go, maybe we should start uh, contending for these rights that I've taken for granted. Uh, it's too late by that point. Right? That's that famous line from Martin Niemöller, one of the members of the Confessing Church with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was initially preaching a little bit of anti-Semitism. He had initially caved to some of the Nazi propaganda, regretted it, repented, spent several years in a concentration camp, survived, and later after World War II said that uh, he wished he had spoken up sooner. He regretted that forever. And he said, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak up because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. <laughs> then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak up for me. My great worry and concern in the fight for life and liberty in America is the same thing, is that by the time the good people begin to wake up, it will be too late, which is why I'm so grateful for Rock Harbor Church of Bakersfield and so much of these remnant churches who are so excited and fired up to contend for these things that are not man's idea, but God's idea. He's the one that knits life together in the womb, and we don't get to decide which babies live and which babies die. But of course, that's the lie of the serpent, right? That's the first lie. Eat the apple, your eyes will be opened, and then ye shall be as gods. You can do whatever you want. If you want to kill babies, eh, well, you're a god, right? I'm convinced that the most powerful lie the devil ever told was not that he didn't exist, but that we could be as gods. And it's the lie that led to every other lie. So those are my opening comments. I wanted to just thank you guys for having me back. I adore your church and your pastors. I've actually never met your pastor, Brandon, because I guess I get invited when he's busy and <laughs> preaching somewhere else. So I'm like, oh, I got to meet this guy. But I, I love Frank and his wife and, and you guys, and it's wonderful to be back. Well, Roe v. Wade is overturned. Dobbs versus Jackson is allowed to stand 49 years of the constitutional in the emanations and the penumbras somewhere there and hidden in invisible ink is the right to an abortion in our constitution. Don't you know? Haven't you read it, you rubes? Um, well, the Supreme Court rightly understanding that there has never been a constitutional right to deny someone the right to life. Oh, wait a second. That's right. That's what this entire republic was built upon. We hold these truths to be self-evident. 
By the way, if, if you ever need to explain the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution to Gen Zers, uh, we hold these truths to be right? self-evident, axiomatic, obvious. These things are so duh, they actually don't need defending. Right? We take these things for granted because how, how else could the left even argue for their own right to participate in the political sphere because that assumes the right to free speech, which means that that assumes that human beings have certain natural rights that come in virtue of being human and that the state doesn't grant those rights. Right? Like, it's, they're so self-evident, they shouldn't actually need defending, but unfortunately in today's political climate, they do. And we have to return to those fundamental foundational premises that built this republic. Oh yes, premises that our founders got from a Judeo-Christian worldview, from the fact that they believed that there was a God and you were not him. And we will one day be held account for what we do or say or left undone and unsaid as stewards. Well, the high places of Moloch are crumbling, and woke pastors and apolitical pastors are very angry. Isn't it interesting to watch the responses of pastors who were marching at BLM rallies during the summer of 2020, who were posting the black square as wonderful men and women like you were graciously trying to remind these pastors, uh, brother, uh, BLM Incorporated says they exist to disrupt the Western contrived notion of the nuclear family. Oh, right, the nuclear family, a mother and a father. Oh, wait, what are most issues that are plaguing American families attributed to? A lack of a father in the home, right? Go read Barack Obama's Father's Day speech from 2008. It reads like some type of, I don't know, Charlie Kirk conservative rocked rib thoughts on fathers. He sounds like a conservative. I'm not joking. Go read Obama's Father's Day message. It's like, if you didn't know who he was, you would think you were reading some conservative think piece, because back then, it was acceptable to still be a Democrat and acknowledge self-evident realities. Like all of the best social science shows that children fare best when raised by their married biological parents in a low-conflict home, in a low-conflict marriage. And he was acknowledging this. And you guys were reminding these pastors, pastors, BLM on their website literally says they exist to get rid of, to replace this bigoted Western notion of what the, the family, yeah, the family. So according to Black Lives Matter, black babies don't matter and black fathers don't matter because they were silent on the fatherlessness rate in the black community. They were pro-abortion, which is the number one killer of black lives in America, and they were against school choice, the best thing for black children to get out of low underperforming schools in majority metropolitan Democrat-run cities and get into better schools because they don't actually care about the little guy. They don't actually care about the family. They care about power. And we're seeing that with clearer eyes in the last couple months than probably at any other time in the last 20 years or so. The desire and craving for power is so fundamental to our political divide in America. And what's the greatest example of that? Abortion. That we could be as gods. That we could assert our will and our power over a little child. A baby who's only alive because you brought them into the world. Oh, Seth, what about rape? Okay, yes, let's talk about the half of a percent. <laughs> According to the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, half of 1% of the annual abortions are performed on women who are getting the abortion because they were raped. So you can just ask a pro-choicer the next time they throw the rape objection at you. <laughs> if we set aside the half of a percent for one second, will you join me in fighting to end the 99.5% of all other abortions that aren't performed on women who have been raped? And what's that pro-choicer going to tell you? No, of course not. Abortion is a woman's right. Oh, then why are you hiding behind rape victims to make yourself look more compassionate? Right, so that's how you can do that one. By the way, abortion and rape are wrong for the same reasons. Why is abortion wrong? Intentional violence against an innocent human being without proper justification. Why is rape wrong? Intentional violence against an innocent human being without proper justification. But they use that objection to make you look like the uncompassionate, unfeeling, evil pro-lifer. You know, you're going to force a woman to have a baby that conceived in rape. Actually, I have more compassion for the victim of sexual assault than you do, pro-choicer, because part of compassion is justice. And I want compassion for that woman by giving her justice, by keeping that man behind bars for life or castrating him. But you don't support that pro-choicer because generally, don't they support springing people from the clink, 
shorter prison sentences and getting the criminals back on the street in short order. What would be compassionate? Justice, never let that degenerate be near a woman again. So just some talking points to make you feel like pro-life ninjas, just to give you some ideological pistols to engage the culture of death, because these talking points are so tired and overused. But many Christians, you know, we freeze up in those intense conversations with people we disagree with, and I want you to feel confident about your position because we're right. Yes, we are right. We are on the right side of history. And we need to start using that type of language. It's not prideful or arrogant to use that type of language if you are grounded in the Holy Spirit and in your faith and understanding that these are babies, these are children, and yes, we should follow the science. But the science says that you were you at the moment you became you at the moment of conception. This is not a political argument. It's not even a religious argument, actually, though I can give you the religious argument for why we should be pro-life. It's just the science. So I actually agree with Dr. Fauci. We should follow the science. But you see, Anthony Fauci does not follow the science because through the NIAID, Anthony Fauci funds the University of Pittsburgh, I might have told you this in January, where they take those taxpayer dollars and they abort babies who could have survived outside the womb, some of them were old enough, and then they scalp them, and they insert the scalps of these precious children on the backs of lab rodents, and the rat begins to grow the infant human hair, that would have grown on the scalp of that precious baby had the baby not been aborted. This is not a conspiracy theory. I could show you the photos. Judicial Watch exposed this. There are photos of lab rodents with human hair growing on their back, and the scientists call it humanized mice because the mice now have some human cells in it so they can use those humanized mice to test solutions to staph infections. So you see? the baby just becomes a sacrifice on man's pursuit for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. Rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, the secular progressive culture demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. And I told you this in January when I was here, you need to understand what we're contending against. We're not contending against an alternative politics, we're contending against an alternative religion. The religion of secular progressivism, the only state religion in America today. You know, the left says, the Republicans are trying to create a theocracy. <laughs> Have you heard this? They're like, what's next? Getting rid of interracial marriage? Did you hear them say this, like right when Roe v. Wade got overturned? Like all these mainstream media commentators were like, they're coming for interracial marriage. And Clarence Thomas is just there like, <laughs> you know, Clarence Thomas is married to a white woman, right? Her name's Ginny. Uh, she's actually very involved in conservative activism. And so, uh, yes, I'm sure Clarence Thomas is coming for his own wife. My gosh, right? But th th they, this is how they view it. They view us overturning Roe v. Wade and protecting some unborn children by sending it back to the States. They view that as like the first wave of a tsunami of theocracy that's coming. Pastors are gonna become presidents and they're gonna demand no one ever have sex again. Right? Like this is how they view it. But in reality, the only theocracy in America today is the state religion of progressivism because it demands acceptance of their creeds and their tenets. And if you don't get in line, you will be treated as a heretic of the regime where you will also be thrown out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> it's just an alternative religion. And at the centerpiece of this alternative religion known as secular progressivism is the slaughter of children. You need to understand this. It is the centerpiece of secular progressivism. Dare I say, it is the sacrament of secular progressivism. You see, abortion says, you must die so I can live. But Christ says, no, I must die so you can live. And because eternity is written on the heart of man, right, scripture says that, because God's reign falls on the just and the unjust, people end up pursuing so much of the similar solutions to their sin 
as Christianity does, but in a perverted way. Have you ever thought about this? Because Satan can only pervert what Christ has already done. He has no original ideas of his own. So what's an example of this? The rainbow. What was the rainbow a symbol of? Uh, I will never wipe you all out again through water. And why did I do that? Because of disgusting, culturally accepted immorality. And now the rainbow becomes the symbol of perverted, culturally accepted immorality. Pride. Pride? That's the deadliest of sins. What are you talking about, pride? So we were just at the hotel, right? Because I was with my son, and he's here with me. And and we were at breakfast just now, and you know, the family comes by, and they're, they had two kids, and their daughter was probably seven or eight, and she's wearing a shirt that says pride, but like eight times, like overlapped over itself, and each word, the color of the rainbow. I'm like, why are you giving your eight-year-old a shirt that celebrates adults' sexual preferences? Like, just put, put the whole gay thing aside. If we were just talking about sexual preferences in general, why would you put that on your kid's shirt? That's disgusting. That, that, that's called grooming, by the way. And of course, your prophecy update, incredible. What we're seeing right now in this country is this attack on children. It's this attack on the family. Yeah, duh. We've been killing babies for 49 years. The culture is accustomed to attacking and abusing children. So abortion is, is really this like litmus test of the republic. It really represents our national consciousness. Because if we're willing to tolerate that, what else will we not tolerate? And so you see the left understands this. I say if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Right? It's the most fundamental right. But the left kind of has like, I call it, what, what do we call it, an antonym? of that, like an inversion of that. They believe if they can get the right to life wrong, and they can get American citizens on board with not just tolerating, but celebrating the slaughter of a million babies here in this country, then there's nothing else we cannot get you on board with or to remain apathetic towards. You see, it's the inversion of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Peter Kraft, the Protestant turned Catholic philosopher, phenomenal guy, uh, you should read some of his books on philosophy. He once said that abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body. But with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So what does Christ say? This is my body. Broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. The culture of death says, no, this is my body, my choice. And I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me in Genesis 3, I'm going to be like a god. You see, it's, it's the inversion and perversion of everything Christ has already done. And so the left seeks to shed innocent blood to secure peace and human flourishing. But Christ says, I shed my innocent blood <laughs> to secure peace for you and eternal life. And of course, we kill babies through embryonic stem cell research, fetal tissue research, fetal organ harvesting, and recently prenatal gene editing. Because if you can edit the genes of the baby in the first trimester while they die, maybe we can use that to perfect gene editing on adults and edit out of the gene code certain susceptibilities to diseases that we don't like. So we sacrifice children in our pursuit of eternal life. And so what the woke pastors in America didn't understand leading up to Trump and through the Trump administration and now is that when they refused to engage these issues, they weren't refusing to engage in politics. They were refusing to preach against false religion that masquerades as just politics. False religion that masquerades as follow the science. Because the left understands how much most pastors fear being labeled political. Right? And so they know if we can just define our entire agenda as it's just politics, then we can tell those pastors, hey, remember separation of church and state. Remember Johnson Amendment. But I think people are starting to wake up to what you already know, that the culture wars was always just a proxy war 
for the spiritual war. There are spiritual principalities and forces behind these politicians. Lori Lightfoot, mayor of Chicago, just screaming, F. Clarence Thomas. Well, there was a time that one might have called that racist. People saying he's an angry black man who's trying to take away your bodily autonomy. Can you imagine if a Republican commentator said that on Fox News, that Lori Lightfoot was just an angry black woman? He would lose his spot like that. But if you're a conservative and you're pro-life because you don't want to kill more black babies because you understand that this actually fulfills Margaret Sanger's agenda, then, oh, then that's just fine. We allow that. You know, I noticed some really beautiful and providential things when Roe v. Wade got overturned. By the way, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban. And the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to allow the 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi to stand. But they did not rule 6-3 to overturn Roe versus Wade. They ruled 5-4. So guess who was with the Supreme Court in allowing the Mississippi law to stand and then flipped and said, but we shouldn't fully overturn Roe and send it back to the states? John Roberts, yes. The greatest enemy to unborn children because in one way, we expect that from Breyer and from Sotomayor and the others. But he has been playing both sides for years, and we can no longer count on him. And yet, through God's providence, it seems that God actually chose to use mean tweets over winsomeness to overturn Roe versus Wade. <laughs> Think about that for a second, because you had people like Rick Warren and Ed Stetzer and uh, Brian Broderhorst at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, the mothership, and all these woke, you know, apolitical, I'm neither left nor right, Christian, Tim Keller's middle wayism. We just got to find that middle wayism. You know, the problem with middle wayism is when you stand in the middle of the road, you're going to get run over by a truck, right? The lines are so clearly drawn today that if you can't pick sides, you'll actually get run over in the process of you trying to maintain peace with both sides. These are the people who say peace, peace, where there is no peace. And these woke pastors thought that they were pleasing Jesus and fulfilling their call to the Great Commission by remaining apolitical and neutral on these issues. Now, Trump, he's so mean. He says such mean things. I don't like the way he talks. Sure, that's fine. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting that God chose to use mean tweets over winsomeness to overturn Roe versus Wade? I, I find that sort of funny. And of course, when you read scripture, you ever heard of imprecatory prayers? Crush my enemy, God. Make them a total embarrassment. Make them the laughing stock. Like some of these prayers are like, whoa! <laughs> like the church don't talk like that anymore about their enemies. Like, and so I think we need to regain sort of some of that courage in the face of these battles because ultimately we're just stewards and we're just puppets that the Holy Spirit slips his hand in through to accomplish his purposes on this world. God could overturn abortion whenever he wants. God could have ended slavery or the Holocaust before letting it happen. Why did he not do that? Is he not powerful enough, church? Or does he wait for his people to rise up so that he can work miracles through them? So there were some phenomenal miracles and providential things that I, I thought were, were quite fascinating. Listen, I, I'm not one who seeks for signs and wonders, uh, you know, Jesus said it's an evil generation that seeks signs and wonders. Uh, but as the Catholic priest George Rettler says, it's a stupid generation that ignores signs and wonders. <laughs> and so I'm not seeking for signs and wonders, but I, I am going to open my eyes when I see providential things. And so I wanted to share a little bit with you. So June 24th was when Roe v. Wade got fully overturned, okay? June 24th, now I'm a Protestant, I'm an evangelical, okay? But because I have many Catholic friends, because I'm in the pro-life movement full-time, I know a little bit about some of their calendar. So anyway, j just hear me out, okay? On June 24th was called the Nativity of John the Baptist. And this feast is celebrated about six months before Christmas, because Elizabeth was in the sixth month of her pregnancy at the time of Jesus's conception, remember? You read that in Luke. And so John the Baptist leaps in the womb and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit because the prenatal John the Baptist is recognizing the deity of Christ in the womb. I call it him the prenatal deity 
the fetal God-man who was fully God and fully human at the moment of conception. So the day Roe v. Wade got overturned was the feast of the nativity of John the Baptist, which is when we celebrate the fetal John the Baptist leaping in the womb at the recognition of the fetal Christ, and then Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the day that Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Isn't that kind of cool? Also on June 21st was this thing called a planetary alignment. Did you guys see this? Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn all line up in that order and were visible to stargazers. Pretty rare. I think the last time it happened was like 2003 or something like that. So super rare. Um, I don't know. That's kind of crazy. And then I learned that the photographer, they're actually called astrophotographers. So if you go look up the photo, you can actually see the five planets in alignment. Right, right, like just looking up at the sky. Amazing. You want to know the name of the uh, photographer? His name is Wright Dobbs. What the heck? Dobbs versus Jackson, the decision that gets upheld, and in so doing, overturns Roe versus Wade. And the last name of the photographer on the same day of a planetary alignment, his last name is Dobbs. And Wright Dobbs, like, that was right. Now it's spelled W-R-I-G-H-T, but I mean, come on. This is pretty cool. So it is an evil generation that seeks for signs and wonders, but it is a stupid generation that ignores signs and wonders. Uh, Also, my son, Cedar Justice, who's four and a half years old, I was uh, in California getting our house, our townhome together to move, and my family was out in Kansas. And on June 24th, when Roe gets overturned, my wife sends me this picture and video, and my son has no idea what the day represents. He knows kind of what I do, but you know, he doesn't know what just happened. And he has this little drawing board where you, know, you can press the erase button and then draw again. And my wife's like, he was so silent in the backseat of the car for like 20 minutes. And if you meet my son, he's never silent, right? It's like, my, like me. And he spent like 15, 20 minutes drawing a mommy with a baby in her belly. And then, and then he says, hey, mommy, look, I drew a, baby with a, uh, look, drew a mommy with a baby in her belly. Isn't my drawing good? And it was like the best drawing he had ever done. And the first time he'd ever tried to draw a pregnant mother, and he did it on June 24th, the day that Roe v. Wade gets overturned. I mean, come on, from the mouth of babes. Like, so pretty cool things. And uh, obviously, I enjoy what I do full time. But this is a real turning point. This is a real Kairos moment for the church that we're living in right now to ask the question, are we going to prove the cycles of history wrong by rising up and stopping this Holocaust before it's too late? Or are we going to descend back into the despotic chapters of history, wherein by the time we wake up, it will be too late? And you know, Dr. Mildred Jefferson understood this decades ago. She's the woman who turned Reagan pro-life. She was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, and she founded the National Right to Life Committee, one of the oldest pro-life organizations in the country. And decades ago, she said, today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow, it is likely to be the elderly or those who are incurably ill. Who knows but that a little later, it may be anyone who has political and moral views that do not fit into the new distorted order. Oh boy, are we approaching that time very quickly. You see, if you were on the premises of the Capitol on January 6th, but you didn't even go inside, you might have had the FBI show up and break down your door and arrest you in front of your daughter. But if you were burning down whole city blocks the summer of 2020, some of whom were courthouses, police stations, and city buildings... So those are government buildings. Oh, then that's just mostly peaceful protests. Did you see in Arizona and Wisconsin, pro-choicers broke into the Capitol. They tore down fences. They arranged themselves in the state Capitol and were chanting for abortion rights. I, I was reliably informed by the mainstream media and the Democrats that that fits the definition of an insurrection. But you see, it's not when the people doing it are people you like. My point is just this, how much longer can this go on before our rights deteriorate as well? Now listen, this is not a tangent, it's directly connected to abortion. Our toleration of this genocide has fast-tracked the speed at which and the rate at which our own rights will disappear as well. And Reagan, who was turned pro-life by Mildred Jefferson, understood this when he wrote his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. And he said, Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free country as long as some men could decide that others are not fit to be free and should therefore become slaves. 
And then Reagan says, likewise, we cannot survive as a free country today as long as some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should therefore be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. So there's actually no cause more important than affirming than the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Right? We're approaching a breaking point in this country very quickly, which is why I'm so grateful for this church and churches like you who actually mobilize your people outside of today's concentration camps, today's death camps where children have their limbs ripped off of their body. And the governor of this state has declared California to be a sanctuary state for killing babies including things like, are you ready for this? Including things like using taxpayer dollars to pay for the travel expenses of women coming out of Arizona to reimburse her for her gas, her food, and her hotel expenses. Oh, and also her abortion because it might be more difficult to get an abortion in Arizona. So we want to use your taxpayer dollars to pay for that abortion in California, including her babysitting for any born children she has back home in Arizona that she needs someone to watch while she travels to California to kill their sibling. I, I know you think that I'm pitching you some like 2150-year dystopic novel, but I'm not. This is happening in California right now. And then, of course, there was AB 2223, which they're still, still trying to push through in California, which says we want to protect women who do get maybe an abortion because of Roe v. Wade maybe getting overturned. And so we don't want women or abortionists to be prosecuted for abortions, miscarriages, or perinatal deaths. Do you remember this? When Jack Hibbs and all of our warrior pastors went up to the Capitol to protest AB 2223, perinatal, hmm, yeah, go find the definition for perinatal. It refers to up to 28 days after birth. So what they're saying is we don't want anyone to be prosecuted even for failure to care for, neglect, or actively killing a baby, which they just call perinatal death, which just means you could kill that baby up to 28 days after birth and there would be no legal prosecutions. And, and again, these apolitical pastors look at people like Frank and Brandon and Jack Hibbs and Tim Thompson and all of our favorite men and they go, those kooky conspiracy theorists, what are they talking about? Infanticide? That can't happen. Why, why couldn't it happen in America? We are the exception. The norm is human sacrifice. The norm, historically, is child sacrifice. You know anything about the Aztecs? In 1484, at the Temple Mayor in Tenochtitlan, the Aztecs ritually sacrificed 4,000 people over the course of two days. They would cut their hearts out while they were still alive, they'd hold the heart up while it was still beating up to the sun god, the sun god, Witzelapokli, they called him, the sun god. And then they would kick the bodies of these people after they ch chopped their hearts off down the steps of the temple mayor. And they believed that Witzelapokli was this sun god who was fighting a constant war against darkness. And if he ever lost, the world would be plunged into a cold, cold darkness and everyone would die. Yeah, some of you are already laughing at that, right? And so in order to keep the sun shining and Witzelapokli happy, he required human hearts and blood. How is that any different from secular liberals today who say we need abortion, which is just a euphemism for child sacrifice, because without abortion, we'll have overpopulation problems. And so that's going to affect the environment, which is going to cause climate change, which is going to piss off the sun god, and so if we don't have child sacrifice, the sun will cease to shine and move across the sky and we'll be plunged into a cold, cold darkness and everyone will die. How is that any different than the Aztecs in 1484? And there were accounts of this, by the way. This is wild. How is that any different from Moloch? How is that any different from Tislatopoki, another Aztec god? Do you remember last year when uh, California Democrats wanted public uh, high school students in, a, in California to chant to this Aztec god? Do you remember that? They wanted them to chant and do these like, it was like a chant for racial equity or whatever. Do you know the name of that god? Yeah, Tizlatopochtli, another Aztec deity that demanded human sacrifice. So America is the exception with the fact that we built a republic on the natural rights of man. The norm is human sacrifice. 
the norm is believing that there's like sex gods and war gods and weather gods <laughs> and crop gods that demand human sacrifice to increase our own human flourishing in lives. And so we need to understand exactly what we're contending against. But I really believe we're living in a Kairos turning point. You know that not all moments are created equal, right? Some moments carry more weight. Some moments are more meaningful. And you know who understood this was Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill in 1941, so Jews are already being rounded up and slaughtered for some time by now, and Winston Churchill said that the destiny of mankind is not decided by material computation. When great forces are on the move in the world, stirring all men's souls, drawing them away from their firesides to cast aside wealth, comfort, and the pursuit of happiness in response to these impulses that are awe-striking and irresistible, we learn that we're spirits and not animals. And that something is going on. Something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which whether we like it or not, spells duty. Fascinating words. Uh, Churchill may not have been a believer. I, I haven't found a smoking gun yet that's proven that he was repented and born again. And yet Churchill is saying, something is going on in space and time. Well, there's only one who dwells beyond space and time. He who created it and breathed out the freaking Milky Way, laughs animals into existence, drops oceans, and then makes you as the peak and pinnacle of his creation, more valuable than anything else he has made, and therefore gives you Christian dominance and dominion over the creation he has made to be stewards of. Something is going on. I think we're living in one of those moments again in 2022. I think 2022 will go down in American history as one of the most culturally and politically significant years in American history. Roe v. Wade getting overturned is nothing short of the Emancipation Proclamation equivalent for this generation. Now, I know it's not the same, because the Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves. Roe v. Wade sends it back to the states. But we were told by the secular culture and the mainstream media that Roe v. Wade would never get overturned, that this was settled law. Get used to it. It's a constitutional right. Of all the victories we could have won in this year with the most pro-abortion president in American history, we tore down and are beginning to tear down their high place, their sacrament, their centerpiece, their sacred cow, which means that we're just getting started and there's nothing else we can't be victorious on when we're empowered by Christ and being obedient to his calling on our lives. This is an exciting time to be alive and I don't want you to miss the the invitation into this Kairos moment. Speaking of Churchill in 1941, you know, as you, well, you, you sit under wonderful teaching here. You know some of the men that understood the Kairos moment they were living in in the 1930s and 1940s. By the way, uh, can you guys tell me any of the names of pastors um, who were preaching Nazi bigotry from their pulpits with the veneer of Christianity or had abdicated their duty and remained silent through the late 1930s and 40s? A any names of those pastors? Right, we forgot all their names, and we should. There will be a few pastors of this generation who in 100 years from now, 200 years from now, names will be spoken with honor and respect for their understanding of their duty before the greatest former fetus to have ever existed. Jesus Christ, who entered human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins. Brandon, Jack Hibbs. Rob McCoy, Tim Thompson, Joe Pettick, Jurgen Matisius, Calvary Chapel San Jose. Just a few names. And one of those names from that time period was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, if you haven't read a biography on Bonhoeffer, I recommend that you do. I'd recommend my friend Eric Metaxas's biography, but there are many other wonderful ones. I'll give you a brief briefer on Bonhoeffer if you don't know his story. He was a founder and member of the Confessing Church. Confessing, I wonder why they called themselves that. Well, it was to insinuate that if you weren't standing against the genocide of Jews, but you were claiming to be a Christian, then maybe you weren't actually confessing the real Christ. Why else call yourself the Confessing Church other than to create a line of demarcation 
between all those guys and us who are preaching the full counsel of God, who are confessing Christ crucified, right? He was a pastor, martyr, prophet, and spy, and was pivotal in organizing Christian German resistance to the Nazi regime. In 1936, authorities banned Bonhoeffer from teaching at the University of Berlin. In 1937, Nazis shut down Bonhoeffer's Finkenwald underground seminary. In 1938, authorities announced that every German pastor had to swear loyalty to Hitler. In 1939, Bonhoeffer was given the opportunity to escape Nazi Germany and return to Union Theological Seminary in New York where he was educated. I want you to think about this. This is 1939. I want you to picture yourself as a pastor, as a husband, and you have an opportunity to escape. You should take it. Protect yourself and your family, right? Bonhoeffer went to New York for two weeks and returned directly back to Germany, stating, I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. In April 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested for helping smuggle 14 Jews out of Germany. He spent 18 months awaiting trial in Tegel Prison and spent that time writing and ministering to fellow prisoners. And we have his letters from prison that you can buy today. On July 20th, 1944, an assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler, titled Operation Valkyrie, failed. Bonhoeffer was charged for knowing about the plot. And on April 8th, 1945, he was court-martialed without representation and sentenced to death. The next day, April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was ordered to strip naked before being hung. Hermann Fischer Holstrung, a Flossenburg prison doctor, described Bonhoeffer's final moments. He said, through the half-open door, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer still in his prison clothes, kneeling in fervent prayer to the Lord his God. The devotion and evident conviction of being heard that I saw in the prayer of this intensely captivating man moved me to the depths. Bonhoeffer's last words were, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. Days later, the Americans would liberate that POW camp. A prophetic and voice and fearless man who was fiercely committed to Christ, Bonhoeffer's writings and words still move people to godly resistance today one of the very few men from that era who understood that the culture war and the politics was just a proxy war for the spiritual war and that he had duties and responsibilities to his king. In the last several months, the Biden administration has started flying illegal aliens out of Texas to other states to get abortions and kill their babies at your taxpayer expense. I know this sounds like some dystopic novel, doesn't it? Biden just signed an executive order promoting abortion pills and expanding them because abortion pills can be, uh, can be uh, received without in-person evaluation. So you can get them through the internet and sent to your mailbox. And they're usually being sent out of India. So how are we supposed to protect unborn children even in states where abortion is now illegal? when the deadly pills are showing up through the postal service. So they're doubling down to promote and expand the abortion pill because they know they can sneak it in through the mail. And so women in Oklahoma and Arkansas and other conservative pro-life states can keep killing their children. A couple months ago at the Washington DC Surgery Clinic, it's an abortion clinic in Washington DC, some sidewalk counselors and one of my friends obtained a box of children from the driver of the waste management company truck. Because you know you have to do something with the children. Do you understand this? Abortion clinics have to dispose of the pieces, okay? So for decades, what abortion clinics do is they hire waste management companies to come and pick up the children. And something happened two or three months ago that hasn't happened in decades, brothers and sisters. Back to that Kairos moment. Back to God intervening in the affairs of men. 
I think God intervened in the situation to prepare the country for overturning Roe versus Wade, to push that to happen. This hasn't happened in decades, because you can understand, right, how secure abortion clinics would keep those relationships to make sure that Americans never saw the remains of what they do, that it never got released, that photos were never taken. And two sidewalk counselors came up to the driver of the waste management company outside of this Washington, D.C. abortion clinic, and they said, do you know what that is? And he said, no. And they said, those are babies. And he said, what? He didn't know. And they said, can we have it? And he said, uh, well, I've already scanned it in. And he gave it to them. They called my good friend A.J. Hurley, who's the director of Survivors of the Abortion Holocaust in Los Angeles, and he met with them to unbox these babies. There were over 105, and five of them were in the third trimester. 30 weeks, 32 weeks, 34 weeks, meaning these babies could have survived outside the womb for two months already in some cases. Live Action, a wonderful pro-life group, just did an undercover expose that they released exposing the same clinic in Washington, D.C. for telling women who want abortions that they can't meet with the abortionist to discuss the procedure unless they've already taken Xanax, a medication which can cause drowsiness and impair your mental abilities, and caught the nurse or doctor of death in this video at the same clinic I just described to you, telling an undercover pro-life journalist who's very pregnant at 28 weeks, she said, he can't meet with you until he's ready to do it and your pants are off in the room. So according to the abortion industry, brothers and sisters, sedated consent is informed consent. Did you hear me? Sedated consent is informed consent. And they made it very clear they don't let women meet with the abortion doctor to discuss what will happen until she's already somewhat mentally impaired through the medication. Now, pro-life Ezekiel Watchmen have known this kind of stuff has been happening for decades, but most of the American public doesn't. And all this stuff started getting released right before Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which whether you like it or not spells duty for the Christian. What will you do? Let's finish with that question, actually. You know what we believe. You know what we're facing. What must we do? I think the answer is quite simple. I think the answer is that you should live today however you envision yourself living had you been born in 1920. Germany, and were a young adult in 1940. Robert P. George, a conservative uh, philosopher who teaches at, the uni uh, at Princeton University, he shares this story sometimes on Facebook. He says, every year I ask my law students, by raise of hands, how many of you would have been abolitionists if you lived in 1850s America? And he says, it's the strangest thing. I've been asking this question for decades, and every semester, everyone raises their hands. Right, because we all think that, right? Do you hear me? We all think that had we been living in 1850s America, oh, me and Harriet Tubman, <laughs> we would have been like this. I would have been underground railroading it so hard, you would have never met a cooler abolitionist than me. Right? Be honest, we may not have all said it verbally, but every man or woman in this room has at one point thought, I would have been a Frederick Douglass. Or in, a, in Europe, I would have been a William Wilberforce. I would have been a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We all think we would, but this is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We look down our noses at the Christians and churches who allowed slavery in America, and we think, <laughs> What cheap grace Christians, what cowards. They must have not had a very robust faith. But brothers and sisters, we allow our own Holocaust. We allow our own lynchings. They're called womb lynchings. And they happened at the tune of a million a year. If you want to know if you would have been an abolitionist, 
or part of Bonhoeffer's confessing church? The answer to that question is the degree to which you engage the Holocaust of our day. Randy Alcorn, warrior, a pro-life pastor and author, once said that we shake our heads in disgust at the German church's tolerance of one Holocaust while ignoring our own tolerance of another. Hans and Sophie Scholl were brothers and sisters who were very involved in resistance movements in Munich in 1942 and 1943. In fact, they had a meeting scheduled to meet with Bonhoeffer to connect with other Christian resistance fighters that they never made it to. And I want to tell you the reason why as we finish our time together this morning. The White Rose Resistance was a small collective of German Christians who began to become horrified at the atrocities being committed against the Jews. And Sophie Scholl, at 21 years old, with dreams of becoming a school teacher, came across a pamphlet one day called Leaflets of the White Rose. You know, white Rose kind of representing purity, innocence. And her heart is stirred to action. She's like, what is this? She reads this leaflet. It's explicitly calling out the crimes of the Nazis. But you know what the focus of the leaflet was on? Not necessarily the crimes of evil people, but all of those good people who know better and are doing nothing. Their first leaflet finished with the words, we are the white rose resistance. We are your conscience and we will not leave you alone. So Sophie comes across this pamphlet and, and she is in love with the Lord. She has a deep Christian faith and she demands to join. <laughs> this is amazing. Come to find out the White Rose Resistance was not only being led, but had been co-founded by her older brother, Hans. So you can imagine Sophie going, hey, what the heck, bro? This is amazing. But you understand he was trying to protect his little sister. Do you know how tight you had to keep those circles of resistance in Germany? Everyone would have been killed for participating in that. He was just trying to be a good older brother. But Sophie demanded to join the White Rose Resistance. And at 21 years old, she became not only the only woman, but the youngest member of the White Rose Resistance. 21, guys. I'm 30. 21. Throughout the rest of 1942, her and her friends would stay up all night writing, printing, and then taking trains all across Germany through the middle of the night, distributing piles of these pamphlets all across German cities. They would get funding to get postage and buy it in small amounts so that the Nazis would not find out of their large bulk purchases, and they would ship these leaflets to neighborhoods and individual homes all across Germany, asking the good people to wake up, those who know better. In 1943, they decided to take things to the next level. And on February 18th, 1943, Sophie demanded to join her brother Hans to walk onto the University of Munich with a suitcase full of these leaflets. Sophie argued that she would be the least likely to be apprehended and searched, the least suspicious as a young woman. And while there were not as many students around the campus, they started dropping off piles of these illegal leaflets of the White Rose all around the university. And in an iconic scene that's been retold in movies and books, right as they were finishing up, Sophie walked up to the third floor balcony and she shoved an entire stack of pamphlets down to the atrium below. Now, you know what happens when you throw paper, right? Everywhere. Wake up, good people. The janitor, who was a deeply committed Nazi, caught Hans and Sophie in the act, had them arrested on the spot, and for the next four days, they sat in prison being brutally questioned, physically abused, and protected all of their friends and claimed that it was only the two of them who were involved in this. Unfortunately, they found incriminating evidence at their apartment, which implicated their friend Christopher Probst, who they did not want to join them because he was a father. And his wife was recovering at the hospital after giving birth to the child he'd never meet. He was 24, 26. In these four days that Sophie and Hans spent in prison, 
Sophie spoke with more moral and spiritual clarity than most of the pulpits in Germany. It was as if her entire life had been condensed into this four days that God was going to use her to say things that would inspire resistance in the hearts of millions for decades after. Sophie understood that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You see, Sophie didn't blame the doers of evil because she understood evil people will always exist and evil people do evil things. Wake up. As Sophie would say in the final days of her life, she would say the real damage is actually caused by all of those millions who just want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weaknesses. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature, just words. Those who live small, die small. It's the reductionistic approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out just like the flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. Who speaks like that at 21 years old? The real damage is caused by all those millions who just want to survive. Providentially, God placed Sophie Scholl in a jail cell with an inmate named Elsie Gebel. And so Elsie was able to later tell Sophie's parents her entire last four days. Sophie's courage and calm disturbed even her captors, who were so moved by her courage that they relaxed the rules and allowed Hans and Sophie to meet with their parents minutes before they were taken to the guillotine on February 22nd, 1943. Sophie's mother looked at her doomed daughter and said, Sophie, remember Jesus. And Sophie said, yes, but you too, mama. Elsie later told her parents that Sophie was overly concerned in her final days about what her and her brother's death would do to her mother, fearful about how her mother could handle losing two children on the same day. And Sophie would tell her mother in those final minutes that what we did will cause waves. Sophie told her cellmate that there would be a student revolt at the university following their execution. They believed that their sacrifice would inspire waves of resistance amongst all of those good people to bring a grinding halt to the Nazi machine. But it never happened. In her final moments, according to her cellmate, Sophie would look out her jail window with the bars and she would say, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day and I have to go now. But what does my death matter? If through us, thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action. As the blade prepared to fall, Sophie said, the sun still shines. And Hans's final words would simply be, freedom, freedom. Sophie Scholl's passion and resolve has inspired me, brothers and sisters, to fulfill her vision, to prick the collective conscience of the culture and awaken the church to action in this Kairos moment. 
I've made it my mission to build the army of resistance that Hans and Sophie dreamed of, but never saw realized. And brothers and sisters, I want you to join me as an ally in building what I'm calling the white rose resistance for this generation. You see, brothers and sisters, we face a silent but far more deadly holocaust. But our sacrifice in this Kairos moment will water the seeds of resistance that freedom fighters and resistance fighters like Hans and Sophie and Dietrich Bonhoeffer watered and planted in the hearts of millions. And millions have looked to their story and their courage to find courage to face their own injustices. The White Rose Resistance exists to educate and expose culture to the evil of abortion until every person has the right to be born. And we exist to solve three problems. There's a lack of knowledge, have you noticed? There's a lack of knowledge in the culture. A poll was done over 20 years ago that found only, ten, only um, one in 10 people could give an accurate account of the Roe versus Wade decision. Rasmussen just did a poll two months ago that found that 77% of Americans, 77, believed that if Roe v. Wade got overturned, it made it illegal at the federal level. It just sent it back to the states. Over three-fourths of Americans believed that it would make it illegal? Yeah, there's a lot of lack of knowledge in the culture. And most people have still never seen the humanity of the unborn child and the inhumanity of abortion. So we exist to solve that problem. There's a problem of opposition. We are facing the abortion industrial complex, a finely tuned, oiled, and well-financed machine that invests almost unlimited resources each year into promoting, expanding, and protecting abortion on demand. So we exist to make a public spectacle of the pro-choice position and debunk and expose their immoral ideas and arguments. And guess what? I'm good at that. This is what I've committed my life to. And we're going to build a team and create thousands of Seth Grubers to raise them up in this Kairos moment in the culture of death. And lastly, the third problem is the silent church. We seem to have been proving Francis Schaeffer right for decades when he said that every abortion center ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful for those of you who have joined your brothers and sisters at this church outside of one of the two abortion centers in Bakersfield to plead for the life of the orphan doomed to die. So I want you to become an ally of the White Rose Resistance. An ally of the White Rose Resistance joins this new resistance organization to do four things. You join at $35 a month, and my goal is 1,000 allies of the White Rose by the end of the year, because you know how it works. You can't rely on a big donor for a big check every 12 months. You need to build a foundation for activism that can't be quenched or canceled <laughs> in a time when people who do my work full-time are facing a difficult journey in front of us and attacks against myself and my family. So you help build up that foundation for activism. You commit to share our content. And if you pull out those cards in front of you, you'll see these four action items. You commit to share our content so that we can reach more people digitally than Hans and Sophie could have ever dreamed of. And I'm going to build the leaflets of the White Rose that will be sent out twice a month to the allies of the White Rose to equip you with short, condensed, persuasive arguments and talking points to be a voice and ambassador for unborn children. I know what it's like when you're in an argument or a conversation with someone. It's hard to recall all of these items and these talking points. And have you noticed how the left, they say all the same things? Have you ever seen those mashups of all the different activist media channels covering a certain story and they're saying the same line, like verbatim? Isn't it crazy? Why? Because they're good at girding up the loins of their people to argue for their ideas in the public square. We need to be better at that in the pro-life movement, defending the lives of precious children. So you create your own content. And listen, I'm not saying you go to a studio and you become a public speaker unless you want to do that. You, sh you create by simply taking the training and the short condensed talking points we give you that you'll receive via email and video from me so that you can feel confident in doing little Facebook videos or talking to friends over dinner so that you can be a confident voice for the unborn. And lastly, you recruit. You tell the story of the White Rose Resistance and recruit new resistance members. I just told the story of the White Rose Resistance to Charlie Kirk, Kirk Cameron, Nick Vujicic, um, and none of them had ever heard the story before. And they were so inspired and moved to action. Charlie told me, this has the Black Lives Matter righteous inversion potential. Meaning in terms of symbolism and the power of a movement to welcome you into participating. He's like, this is going to be huge. And we're working with Turning Point USA and my pastor Rob McCoy and Charlie Kirk to build something huge. So listen, guys, I'm not asking you to sacrifice your head like Hans and Sophie. But I am asking you to sacrifice your heart. 
And when you share our content and you participate in the white rose resistance that I'm building, you know what? Sometimes it might feel like your head's getting chopped off, but you're still gonna wake up tomorrow in the land of the free and the home of the brave, which will only remain that way if we tear down the high places of Moloch. So I'm asking you to become an ally of the white rose. If, if, if that doesn't fit with the place you are in life, please just leave the card there. We'll collect it afterwards. I, I kind of need them. They're expensive to print. <laughs> so, but if you want to join that perforated tear off, you can tear it off, fill out your info, your credit card information. If you want to cover the credit card expenses that, you know, they charge you, what is it, one and a half percent or whatever, just mark cover credit card expenses. And I would love to have you join our white rose resistance in this turning point in the fight for life. Uh, $35 a month probably won't change the lifestyle of hardly anyone in this room, and it's certainly not going to cost you your life, but it is life or death for the child in the womb and their mother who have not heard from me and have not heard from the pro-life movement and who are going to pursue abortions more passionately than before because California is going to become a Moloch worship center saying, come, come from Arizona, come from Arkansas, come from Oklahoma, come from Idaho, come, come kill your children here. We will protect the sacrament of Satan. So if you want to help me build an army of resistance that can turn the tide, I would welcome you to become an ally of the White Rose you can leave that perforated tear off up here on the stage if you'd like to join. If not, please leave the card there. But I wanted to give you a practical call to action. I believe in seven years, this will be the biggest pro-life organization in the world. It will be an international movement. I believe the power and symbolism of this resistance idea was given to me by God to honor the story of the White Rose resistance and accomplish the goals they never saw realized. In the meantime, brothers and sisters, I will see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.